Okay, uh, hi everybody. Uh, so I'll make a couple of comments before uh, we get to the lecture. So um, I posted the grades for midterm two. The average was higher than last time. Um, it was about 70. So, uh, and the Scantron data didn't indicate that there were any issues with any of the questions. There was one question that came up a few times in the actual exam. That's this one. Uh, can follow this, consider the following section. Coding strand, non-coding strand, and what are you going to make in RNA? The intent of the question was to ask you what's going to be transcribed into RNA. Which, if this is the coding strand, then it would be this. But having reread the question a few times, it makes clear that uh, the way that the question is written, it could be asking you what section from here would be transcribed into RNA. So in that case, option C would also be correct. And so when this was graded, both, both of C and D were graded as correct. Okay. So hopefully that's not an issue. Um, I know tomorrow's ad drop. Uh, we're not going to be able to have an exam viewing prior to tomorrow, unfortunately. I don't have time my schedule to do that. Um, right now it's looking like, uh, in, please look at the Moodle. Uh, exam viewing is likely going to happen after next class, so uh, Tuesday afternoon. Um, you have your grade for, for midterm two. A couple of people have asked me about a potential error. Maybe there's an error in their grading. In my experience, that tends to be very rare. It's not unheard of. It has happened. Um, but it tends to be very rare. Uh, if, you, if, you're, if your exam was graded with the wrong key, that's, that's one way you can get a, a drastically changed grade. So um, in that case, you're going to get a score around 20%, because basically you're, you're, and you're answering randomly. And so, you know, if you thought you did better than 20% and, and that's what your score is, then that's conceivable. So what I'm going to ask you to do is if, if prior to add drop, um, you think there was an error, then, um, then shoot me an email. And I can go through the data, your, your sheet and your, and your scores, and, and see whether there was a, that type of an error, some sort of drastic issue. Uh, if after reviewing your exam on Tuesday, it looks like there's an error, and that would have affected your, your ad drop decision, then I'm happy to help you do a late drop. Uh, we, could, we could go to um, the undergrad office or do that by email, and, and you know, if, if there was a, an error on your exam, a major error, or an error on your exam that, that affected your ability to decide whether you were going to add or drop, and we only became aware of that error, after the drop deadline, then, then we can try to cross that bridge when we get to it. But again, th these, these errors tend to be quite rare. The, the, the possibility that your, your, your sheet was put in the wrong pile and, and you used the wrong key, well, that's going to be a drastic change in your grade. But other changes, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, you are responsible for filling the Scantron to an, in a way that the, the machine can read it, right? So if you forget to put a something or you put two of this, answers on it. I mean, that's not something that we can really, that's not an error we can fix. We can't really fix that. Although it could result in your score being lower than you thought. So anyways, um, shoot me an email. Oh, and, and by the way, um, this is in the syllabus, but I think people are, are not doing it. Um, if you've got a content question, like I don't understand lecture five, slide three, you send that email to bio20a at If you've got an administrative question, that has to come to me. So we've got TAs that help with these. But the TAs don't manage the grades. or And, and so administrative questions go to me. Okay. Um, if you're looking at this on the Camtasia, I'm just writing the email addresses for content questions versus admin questions. Uh, you can't see the blackboard, but it's in the syllabus. Okay, so, so kind of take a look at the syllabus. 
Okay, uh, that's pretty much all I need to cover, I think, for now, unless there are questions about that. Yeah. The final? Yeah, the final will be all multiple choice. It'll, it'll look very similar in structure and concept to the midterms, except it'll be cumulative but weighted, meaning the final third, that is the stuff since midterm two, will be much more highly represented because we haven't tested that yet. So uh, it'll be more than, more than, even though there are three thirds in the course, more than 50% of the final will be on the last third. I think it works out to on the order of 65% of the final is on the last third. Um, so, and often, often it's hard to parse that. Sometimes there may be a question because, and this is one of the reasons it's good to have a cumulative final. I can ask a question that's kind of asking you to take a concept we learned in the first section and a concept we learned in the third section and kind of make a more holistic or, or uh, comprehensive question, a question that's actually asking your understanding for the whole course. You know? um, but obviously, but most of the stuff in the final exam will be on the last third. It'll be multiple choice and it's three hours. So you, there are more questions, obviously, on the final, but you also have three hours to do it. So there's, there, in my experience, there's no shortage there's no shortage of time on the final. Or people have a lot, as much time as they need. Oh, and the final date, the final exam date has been posted. If you have, if you don't know, I posted it on the Moodle. Uh, it is Sunday, great, Sunday, December 18th. I'm not positive about the time, but that's the date. I think it's in the. What's that? I was gonna. I was gonna say. I thought it was two to five. Okay, so uh, we're going to pick up from last class. We're going to get into some stuff on metabolism of glucose. So this is a summary of, of what we're going to, a summary of some of the things we're going to cover today. We're going to cover basically glucose going down into pyruvate and pyruvate going into ethanol or lactate and then getting back up from pyruvate back up to glucose and some regulation of those things, okay? So we catabolize glucose into pyruvate, and then we can also anabolize, or use anabolism to get pyruvate back up to glucose. So we can build up or break down. Um, whether or not you go this way, this branch, when you get to pyruvate, or this way, one of these two ways, depends on whether you're in conditions of oxygen you're replete with oxygen, if there's lots of oxygen, then you continue on the aerobic pathway, which works much better for growing, uh, generally, for extracting energy. But if you're under anaerobic conditions, meaning there's not a lot of oxygen around, then you're going to do one of these two things. You're going to make ethanol or lactate, depending on whether you're a, ye you're a yeast or a person. And we call that fermentation. And we'll get to that in a second. Okay. But this is basically what we're going to kind of talk about generally today. This is uh, another way of calling this, we're doing glycolysis, we're doing gluconeogenesis, and we're doing some regulation of those things. And I expect some of these, at least, you've probably seen already, but we're going to get in a little more detail. Okay. So this is the summary of glycolysis, okay? And, and, and a, a common question I get is, it's kind of like when we go, we're talking about the amino acids, what do I need to know in terms of the exam, and do I need to know the structures? So there's... In the third section of the course, there's a lot of structures. We're going to do glycolysis. We're going to do Krebs cycle. We're going to do oxidative phosphorylation. We're going to do urea, no, yeah, urea cycle and some amino acid metabolism. There's a lot of structures. And the question is, do you need to know structures? Well, there's kind of two schools of thought, right? You could always look up the structure in a textbook, and, but you could do that for anything in a course. So in one sense, structures kind of aren't important, but at the same time, Structures are important. It's important to kind of understand how metabolism happens, and without knowing the structures, you have an incomplete understanding of that. So my philosophy in the course has always been to take a kind of a um, compromise view of those two extremes. Um, there will only be questions on the exam where I refer to a structure for glycolysis. Okay, so we're going to do Krebs cycle. We're going to do, and there will be questions that obviously refer to Krebs cycle. I'm going to talk about enzymes that do this, or 
free energy issues or cofactors, ATP, GTP, all those things. Um, but there won't be any real, I'm not going to ever show you a structure for something in, uh, in Krebs cycle, but I might for glycolysis. Okay, so you probably do want to be generally familiar with the, with, the, with the structures for this pathway. Now again, bear in mind, it's a multiple choice exam. I can't ask you to draw uh, fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. You don't need to be able to do that. But I could show you fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and ask you, what is this? Okay, something like that. So we're going to go down this, down this a little bit, and we're going to talk about the enzymes that do this. This is a, and I think I've mentioned this already, for people that are really good at memorizing things, like if you're really good at anatomy and things like that, um, then this is a good section for you because there's just a lot of details. There's an enzyme for every step. There's a place where you do an ATP hydrolysis. There's a place where you make an ATP. So uh, if you're really good at memorizing the names of things and the enzymes that do those things and just kind of, in a way it's, it's easy, right? You just kind of sit down and make sure, you sit down with your cue card and can you, can you draw it out after you've stared at it for an hour. So I encourage you to think a bit that way for this section. Having said that, there are some concepts that are, we're going to be covering also. If you want to become a doctor, this is really important to be able to do, right? Uh, doctors are really good at just remembering stuff, and, and a lot of people here think they're going to be a doctor, so you want to be able to, to have this skill. It's not, it's not a trivial skill. Um, it's, it's an important thing to be able to do for certain vocations. Other vocations, not so much. Okay, so we're going to go through each reaction, and we're going to kind of highlight some interesting things about each step, okay? So again, the, the idea is to take, by the end of the reaction, by the end of glycolysis, or the end of uh, glucose metabolism, the idea is to take the energy that's in glucose, which is effectively food, and extract as much energy out of that as possible, such that we make as much ATP as possible, okay? So this is where we're starting with glucose. And we have to activate glucose to be able to metabolize it subsequently. And so to activate it, we actually use an enzyme called hexakinase, which takes an ATP, hydrolyzes it to an ADP, and puts a phosphate on the 6-carbon of glucose. Okay? So this is a bit counterintuitive, right? We're actually burning an ATP to be able to metabolize glucose, right? So this is, we call this reaction, subsequent reaction, that also burns an ATP, these are called priming reactions. It's also called we also talk about it in terms of um, priming a pump, okay? So if you, uh, back in the day, before you could just turn on the tap, if, you, if there was a water pump in the middle of a village, um, you would have to, uh, like, I mean, a pump with a handle, you would, you, if, you just, if that pump has not been used in a little while and you, and you pump the handle, nothing comes out because the pump is just basically full of air and you're just pumping the handle up and down and nothing's coming out. But if you, so what people would do is they would, there's a section of the pump where you pour water in, that fills the pump and all the pipes full of water, and now when you pump the handle, the water that you've put in pulls the water that's down in the bottom of the well up and out, and so it's this idea of priming a pump, right? You gotta put a little bit in first before you get what you want back, okay? So we're putting in a little bit of ATP for the purpose of later getting ATP. So any reaction that burns an ATP is likely going to be exergonic, meaning uh, it's going to be favored energetically. So we can see this delta G naught prime of negative 16.7. If you remember from a few slides ago, um, ATP hydrolysis, ATP to ADP is on the order, just a straight hydrolysis reaction where you're not putting a phosphate on anything, it's just hydrolysis. That's on the order of minus 30. And so this reaction is not favored normally. If you were to try to do this by just taking phosphate and sticking it on this hydroxyl, that would be very difficult. But by, by hydrolyzing, by that phosphate coming from an ATP, by effectively coupling the hydrolysis of an ATP to putting that phosphate on, the net delta G naught prime is, is negative. So you've kind of paid for some of that. Again, you get an, a minus, on the order of a minus 30 by doing a hydrolysis. You can imagine that probably this reaction from just phosphate would be on the order of plus 14, and, and the net, using a similar calculation to what we did last class, is minus 16. Okay. I saw you first. Yeah, so it's just, this is just to show that it's a magnesium-dependent reaction, and this gets a little bit back to what we talked about in section 2. Um, 
pretty much any reaction that involves uh, breaking or making phosphodiester bonds in nucleic acids or in nucleotides is going to need magnesium. Actually, all right, same question. Is there a reason why it's beta glucose as opposed to alpha? So that's, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, so th this is being drawn as beta with the hydroxyl down. It's not clear to me whether or not both beta and alpha would be active in this reaction. Bear in mind, of course, they're in, they're in equilibrium, right? We talked about that, that. Beta and alpha glucose are in equilibrium. So if the enzyme prefers beta, well, then it's going to deplete beta, and then you're going to basically shift back towards equilibrium, right? You're going to have some alpha glucose that's going to equilibrate into beta, and then that will be the substrate. It's not clear to me whether you need particularly beta glucose to do this. But they're in equilibrium with each other, so. Is it alpha? I don't know. When we drew it up or down in one way, and depending on which way the hydroxyl, did we draw it down as, we drew down as alpha, is that right? Yeah, okay, so this is alpha. Okay, so the next reaction is an isomerization reaction. Okay, basically we're gonna take glucose 6-phosphate, which is a six-membered ring, and isomerize it into fructose 6-phosphate. Okay, so that basically, involves moving that carbonyl from the end of an aldose in one carbon to make a ketose, okay? So this is basically, there's not really much happens here in terms of things coming on or getting off. You're just rearranging the structure of it, okay? This is slightly, and we, I think we covered this as, a, as an example last class, right? You know, if this is basically in uh, equilibrium, right? And there's a delta G not prime associated with this. It's not particularly far from zero. So there's going to be a reasonably high abundance of both of these at equilibrium conditions, right? But this enzyme helps the transition between those two states, right? Um, the abundance of fructose 6-phosphate, because this is drawn this way, and we've got a positive delta G not prime, the abundance of fructose 6-phosphate is going to be a little bit less than the abundance of glucose 6-phosphate. But this is not such a high number that it's going to be vanishingly small amounts of this but we need to make fructose 6-phosphate to metabolize this further down the chain. Okay. This is our second priming reaction, okay? We're going to take fructose 6-phosphate, and there's this enzyme called PFK1, phosphofructokinase 1, okay? So often the, you can help yourself by kind of understanding what reaction is happening and what your substrates and your products are by there's a relationship between the substrates and the products and the name of the enzyme, okay? So you can imagine, so phosphofructokinase, well, it's a, phosphokinase, so that something's getting a phosphate, right? It's phosphofructokinase because we're doing it to something that looks like fru fructose, right? So people usually, they don't call enzymes George. They usually call it some name that has some relation to what it's doing, right? So we got fructose 6-phosphate. We're going to hydrolyze a second ATP now, okay? And we're going to put a second phosphate on it, right? And we're putting that phosphate on the one carbon, okay? Remember, this one carbon was the anomeric carbon. Right, when it was glucose. But because we're now into fructose, this is carbon two is now the anomeric carbon. So now this one carbon here is going to get this phosphate. Okay? Again, this is highly exergonic because we're coupling the hydrolysis of an ATP to a reaction that would normally be endergonic. Okay? But the net delta G naught prime is quite negative. So it's favored. Okay? Another thing that's important about this a couple things that are important about this. Number one, we've burned a second ATP. So we're two ATPs down for our, the, pur the purpose of this is to make ATP. But we're actually two, two ATP in the hole right now. Okay? That's one thing I want to say. Excuse me. The second thing I want to say is fructose 6-phosphate is not useful only in the cell for glycolysis. Fructose 6-phosphate can be used for a lot of other things, depending on what the cell needs. Okay? And, but once you do this reaction and you burn an ATP doing it, you're basically committed to taking fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and going down and finishing glycolysis. So this is actually an enzyme that's highly regulated. Okay? You want this enzyme, this, and we're going to talk about this later in the class a little bit. Okay? This PFK1, phosphofructokinase 1, is a very highly regulated enzyme. You want this enzyme on when you want to be doing glycolysis, but you want this enzyme off when you don't want to be doing glycolysis for whatever reason. 
if you've got lots of ATP in the cell, if you've got other needs that are happening, then you probably don't want to be taking fructose 6-phosphate and making fructose 1,6-bisphosphate out of it because this is basically an irreversible step. I mean, it's reversible, but you, um, we'll talk about that when we get to gluconeogenesis. But you don't want to do this. You don't want to burn an ATP and make fructose 1,6-bisphosphate if you're not doing glycolysis. Why would you burn an ATP? Because once you make this, this basically has to go down to pyruvate. So uh, PFK enzyme activity levels will change. This enzyme's activity will change based on whether we want to do glycolysis or not. Yeah. So we'll get, we'll get to that also. Okay. We'll get to that when we get to the um, gluconeogenesis. All right. So now we're going to take fructose-1,6-bisphosphate. And using this enzyme called aldolase, we're going to break it into... So you can imagine that this is an equilibrium with the linear form. Okay, and we're going to break that down into the, this is a six-carbon compound, right? If we take the six-carbon compound and just break it down the middle, the linear form of it, we get these two products, right? There's the dihydroxyacetone phosphate, there's this end, and there's glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. Okay, so these are basically two different versions of the three-carbon, so we talked about the, the trioses, right? The glyceraldehyde uh, and uh, dihydroxyacetone, right? Well, you've got one of each, right? One dihydroxyacetone. The fact is, the, 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 differ, the difference is that each of them are phosphorylated, right? So you put a phosphate on the three carbon of glyceraldehyde, and because dihydroxyacetone is in chiral, you can't really say whether this is the one or the three carbon, right? So um, you end up with these two products, okay? Uh, this is highly endergonic. See this delta G not prime? Not happy. This should not happen very well. Two things we have to think about, though, when we're talking about um, whether or not you're going to be, and this is going to come up again when we get to Krebs cycle a bit. Why would this reaction happen then? Why would this, what, what confounders or what are the things we need to think about when we're talking about whether or not this reaction should happen or not? I'll take a stab or I'll turn this one. Take my coffee. So, so, okay, so that's, that's one side of it, okay? If glycolysis is happening, then this is, not, this is not a reaction that's happening in isolation, right? You should think of this as more of a conveyor belt. You know, A to B to C to D to E to F. You're going to start with glycolysis, and you're going to end in pyruvate, okay? And so when you make this, these are going to go down the line and become other things, right? So basically, you're always taking this off. Remember, this delta G naught prime is basically another way, using the equation that we did last class, this is another way of writing an equilibrium constant. And as written, this is basically saying that at equilibrium, there's going to be a lot more of this. Because this is so positive, there's going to be a lot more of this than there is of this. But if you're constantly removing this from the equilibrium equation, if this is constantly being moved down to the next thing, and, the, and as a result, the delta G of the whole process, if the process of going from glucose all the way down to pyruvate is net negative, then even though this particular reaction is, is not favored, because you're always removing this, this will go this way. It will go from the left to the right because it's in equilibrium and this is constantly being depleted. Right? So if this is moving down the line, down the conveyor belt to the next steps, well then it's going to reestablish a new equilibrium and some more of this is going to get converted to that. That's one of the two. Did you know the other one? Yeah. So in a way, well, that's what I'm kind of talking about. It's, uh, no, it's not coupled necessarily to an ATP hydrolysis, not this step. The other thing that I want to mention is that, remember, this is delta G naught prime. And this is going to happen. We're going to see this for a few other reactions. Delta G naught prime means under standard conditions. One atmosphere, pH 7, and 25 degrees Celsius. But bodies, human bodies, or coli, or whatever, they do not work under standard conditions. They may or may not work around pH 7. They certainly don't work at 25 degrees Celsius. You know, they work at 37 degrees Celsius. And so there's a, this, this number is the delta G naught prime, but there's also a delta G that is more physiologically relevant. The delta G will be the free energy change at 37 degrees, and maybe a pH around 7, but maybe not exactly 7. Do you know what I mean? The reality is, when, and we're going to cover this 
on a table in a few slides, when you look at the delta G for this reaction, under the conditions that occur in cells, this number is much closer to zero. It's not so endergonic. It's more favored under the conditions you have in cells than it is under standard conditions on the bench, on the lab bench. So uh, it's actually glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate that is the one that we need to move down the chain, right? Dihydroxyacetone phosphate is not useful to us for subsequent steps. So we need to take that dihydroxyacetone phosphate and transfer it also into glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. This is another isomerization reaction. We're taking, so for glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 6-phosphate, we were taking an aldose and changing it into a ketose. What we're doing here is we're taking a ketose and we're changing it into an aldose. So basically, we're rearranging some bonds. We've got a carbonyl here on carbon 2, and we're rearranging some bonds to put the carbonyl on carbon 1. Okay. So this is just an isomerization reaction. Okay. It's done by triose phosphate isomerase. Right. This reaction is also endergonic, but again, we're constantly depleting this, so that moves the reaction to the right. And again, under, under non-standard conditions, under uh, in cells, the delta G, as opposed to the delta G not prime, this change in free energy is closer to zero. So it's a lot easier to do in cells than it is to do at 25 degrees. So what's our sum of reactions so far? Uh, we took a glucose and an ATP. We made glucose 6-phosphate. Sorry, we made glucose 6-phosphate. Then we took and an ADP. We took a glucose 6-phosphate, and we converted that to a fructose 6-phosphate. So this is just a sum of reactions where the products on the right get moved down to the next line. So you can basically take glucose 6-phosphate and cross it out on both sides of this reaction. And then you basically get to the bottom. And what do you have left over? You've got two glucose, sorry, a glucose and two ATP that you've used. And you've made two glyceraldehyde 3-phosphates. And you've converted those two ATPs into ADPs. So we've generated a net loss of energy. Okay. But this is, the done, this is the end of the priming phase. Now we're going to get some payback. We're going to get some ATP out of this. right? You have to bear in mind, though, that we started with one glucose here, and now one six-carbon compound, and we've now got two three-carbon compounds, okay? Two glyceraldehyde three-phosphates. So all the steps that we're going to talk about from now on for the rest of glycolysis are happening in duplicate, right? There's two glyceraldehyde three-phosphates that are happening for every one glucose we started with. Not an emergency. Okay, so reaction six. Again, so we're drawing this as one. Glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. Um, we're drawing this as one reaction, but again, it's happening in duplicate. Okay. We're taking a glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase. This is, in effect, uh, an oxidation reaction. We're taking electrons off of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, and we're going to oxidize this, and we're going to reduce NAD plus into NADH. Okay, so we're going to... We're going to reduce NAD and oxidize glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. So remember, whenever we do an oxidation reaction, uh, the enzyme that you're going to see that does that is always going to be called a dehydrogenase. Right? And to do that, we're also going to take an inorganic phosphate. That is not a phosphate that's on an ATP or an ADP or a GTP. It's just a phosphate that's floating around. And we're going to put that on a glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, and we're going to make 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate. Uh, so basically, this had one phosphate on it, now it's got two phosphates on it. So this kind of, this, we refer to this as bisphospho. Okay. Again, the delta G naught prime is positive on this, but under, in, in cellular conditions, it's close to zero. Now we're going to knock one of those phosphates off. Okay. We're going to do a phosphoryl transfer from 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate, and we're going to take that phosphate and put and make 3-phosphoglycerate and ATP. Okay? So we're taking this phosphate here, and we're putting it on ADP to make ATP. All right? here. This is phosphoglycerate kinase that does this. We're basically phosphorylating ATP. So this is a kinase where the substrate is ADP. Okay? Again, it's a magnesium-requiring reaction. We call this a substrate-level phosphorylation. As we're going to cover later... In, in this section of the course, most of the ATP we make in the cell is not this way. We're not going to take a phosphorus from some metabolite 
and take that phosphorus and put it on ADP to make an ATP. Most of this ATP that's made in the cell is not done that way. But it is done that way here. We're taking a, we're taking a metabolite in the cell that is phosphorylated and we're putting it directly on ADP to make ATP. And so now we've, we've, at, we've gotten back an ATP. This is an endergonic, exergonic reaction. It's favored. We end up with 3-phosphoglycerate. Okay, so we've got a carboxylic acid group here now. Okay. And before, when we had uh, glycerolide 3-phosphate, we had an aldehyde group here, right? Now we've got a carboxylic acid here. So this is, in effect, a reduction of this group. Sorry, an, an oxidation of this group, and that's why we talked about it last slide, how that was a, um, an oxidation of our three-carbon compound. Okay. So we've got this three-phosphoglycerate, and we've made an ATP. And remember, this is happening twice, right? There's two 1,3-bisphosphoglycerates for every glucose we started with. We paid two ATP to start the reaction, and we've got those two ATP back now. Okay, so we're net zero because, again, this is happening twice for every glucose we started with. Um, I mean, I'm, we could get into the chemistry of the reaction. I'm not, you know, one proton that's around is this one. But I'm not sure it is that one. In theory, it could be also be pulled off of water. I mean, this H that's on NADH is, is covalently bound to NAD+. Plus H+. Plus. Sorry, this one you mean here? It floats off, yeah. So we've got this H that's coming off of the phosphate. It's now gone. We've got this H that was part of this aldehyde group. So these two H's, I presume one of them is this H that's on NADH, and the other one just comes off. OK. So now we're going to do this 3-phosphoglycerate to 2-phosphoglycerate. We're just going to move this phosphate group uh, from the 3 position to the 2 position by this enzyme phosphoglycerate mutase. Delta G naught prime of slightly endergonic. Again, under cellular conditions, uh, this is closer to zero. And again, we're gonna rapidly convert this into the thing. So as we deplete this, this reaction is gonna go from left to right. Yeah. I mean, aerob aerobically, we're gonna get to that when we get into oxidative phosphorylation. I mean, I guess, let me, let me qualify that, okay? If we're just doing fermentation, then yeah, the substrate-level phosphorylations is the way we're making ATP. But um, ideally, cells aren't running under that, um, or at least at optimal efficiency, they're not running under that program. They're running aerobically. And we're going to make ATP on ATP synthase later on. This is being done both aerobically and anaerobically. We have not yet branched. We branch, we make that decision for whether we're doing things aerobically or anaerobically at pyruvate. And we haven't gotten to pyruvate yet. But if you're doing uh, things aerob anaerobically, then these are the only ATP you're going to be getting. You're not going to be. We've got this uh, dehydration reaction now. We're going to take 2-phosphoglycerate. Uh, we're going to do this enzyme called enolase. So um, enolase, uh, you should have some semblance from your chemistry. When you see something like enol, you're going to be looking for a double carbon double bond and an and a, uh, alcohol group. Here's our alcohol group. Here's our double bond that we're going to be making in carbons. So that's enolase makes sense. We're basically removing this hydrogen and this uh, hydroxyl as a water molecule to make uh, phosphoenol pyruvate. And formally, this is, a this is a dehydration reaction, right? Okay. So I mean, they gave this enzyme name enolase, but it could be also a dehydratase or something like that. But the point is that um, this is a dehydration reaction, and we're going to end up with this at the end. Uh, you probably don't remember this. 
from um, that table I showed last class of the free energy of hydrolysis of the various metabolites. We talked about how there's lots of different phosphate-containing molecules uh, in cells in, in, in glucose metabolism. And uh, you know, uh, they have varying standard free energies of, of phosphate hydrolysis. Um, I'm sure you don't remember the table, but I'll just call attention to you. I'll call your attention to the fact that at the very top of it was phosphoenyl pyruvate. This phosphate really wants to get off. It's not happy here. Okay, so to hy just hydrolyze this phosphate off gives off a large amount of energy. If I remember, something on the order of 60 kcal per mole. Okay, so, oh, sorry, kilojoules per mole. And so this is where we're going to make. Because taking that phosphate off is so energetic, okay, we're going to make another ATP while we're at it. This is another substrate-level phosphorylation. We're going to take phosphoenyl pyruvate. We're going to take this phosphate, put it on ADP to make ATP. Right? So now we've made another two ATPs. So our net ATP balance sheet is plus two. We started with uh, losing two. We got two back couple slides back and now we've gotten another two back okay so we're in the black again we're out of the red okay. we've made two ATPs there's a lot of free energy that's just lost here you can almost make another ATP but they cell hasn't figured out a way to do that the point is that this reaction is very very favored okay. so in addition to spending enough energy to make an ATP there's another 31 kilojoules, kilojoules per mole favor this reaction. Okay. And here we, now we're done. We're done glycolysis. We've gotten down to pyruvate. Okay. So this is the end of glycolysis and the end of the section where I'm going to ever ask you anything about structures. Okay. I wouldn't obsess about the structures. Um, like I said, the number of questions I can ask you about structures is limited. And, and there probably won't be more than one or two questions where there might be a structure. So this is our balance sheet, right? We have this energy investment phase where we burn two ATPs to make two ADPs. And then we, uh, in the second phase, we took four ADPs and made four ATPs. So our net balance sheet, we're up two ATPs. We've made two pyruvates, and we've made two NADHs. And the NADHs are, the, are, are what we're going to talk about next class when we talk about Krebs cycle. The action's really at the NADHs. They're the, they're the, they're the important thing. They're the things that are going to make a lot of... So we've basically reduced two NAD pluses into two NADHs. Okay? We've put those electrons on. We talked about last class how NADH is kind of our electron carrier. Right? We've put those electrons on NAD plus to make NADH. Those electrons, eventually, we need to, we need to, we need to get rid of those electrons now. Okay, like if we, there's a limited amount of NAD plus in the cell, right? And if we take all the NAD plus and convert it into NADH, well, how are we going to do more glycolysis? How are we going to take NAD and convert it to NADH to make pyruvate if NADH just keeps getting, you make more and more and more and more of it and to the point where you have no more NAD anymore? So we need to eventually take these electrons off these NADHs and do something with them to regenerate NAD to keep glycolysis going. And that gets into, um, and we'll talk about this when we get back, when we get to fermentation and Krebs cycle. What we do with these NADHs depends on whether or not we have oxygen or not. Okay? If we have oxygen around, then eventually we're going to put those electrons on oxygen. And we're going to get a lot more energy out of these NADHs. We're going to make a lot more ATP. But if there isn't oxygen around to be able to finally take those electrons, well, then we're going to basically put those electrons on something in a way that's not very productive, just so that we can regenerate some NAD to keep glycolysis going. We'll talk about that in a few slides. So this is the sum of the energies that we um, talked about. Okay. Um, one thing I want to draw your attention to is this difference in free energies. Right. So there's the delta G naught prime. This is under standard conditions, 25 degrees Celsius. This is more what's representative of what's happening in cells. Okay, so delta G is not under, a cell does not operate under standard conditions. The most obvious difference is temperature. And you can see that, you know, some of these reactions that are very endergonic, very unfavored, 23 here, 
it's closer to zero in a cell, right? And there's some other ones here. So the, one of the points that we want to make here is that in a cell, this rea these reactions, the, the sum of glycolysis is a lot more favored than under standard conditions. When you look at the ones that are very negative, okay, they're basically the ones where we played with ATP, right? Where we did an ATP hydrolysis or an ATP generation, okay? This minus 33.4, minus 22.2. It's very hard to go back the other way, okay? It's very hard to take uh, uh, glucose 6-phosphate and ADP and make ATP out of it, okay? Um, so these are the reactions in glycolysis that we call irreversible. Now, that doesn't mean we can't go from pyruvate and make glucose. We can, and we're going to talk about that. But we don't do it the same way. We don't do it the way that, that a lot of these reactions were reversible. I mean, you can imagine that a, a reaction where the delta G is close to zero, well, that means that at equilibrium, you've got about equal amounts of substrates and products, right? And so if you need to move the conveyor belt from left to right, well, the depletion of the thing on the right is going to move the reaction from left to right. But let's say you've got all the glucose you can, you've got all the ATP you can handle. You don't need any more ATP. Well, do you want to be burning glucose then? Probably not. It might be more productive to make glucose. And so you can do that, and we're going to talk about that. Then you want to move the conveyor belt from right to left, right? And for reactions that are, have a delta G close to zero, well, that's easy. You just, because your metabolite on the right of the reaction, the product is going to be more abundant, well, if that delta G is close to zero, it's going to move to the left. So we'll talk about those differences. I want to talk a little bit about what I was talking about previously with this idea of fermentation. Uh, what do you do with the pyruvate? That's basically the, the questions. And, and the other question that's relevant to this is how do we regenerate NAD? Eventually, what we're going to do if you're growing in oxygen is we're going to use, we're going to finally take these electrons that we took off of, uh, sorry, during this uh, NADH that was made during glycolysis, right, during that dehydrogenase reaction. If we don't regenerate NAD, then we're not going to be able to do glycolysis anymore, right? So we need to put those electrons on NADH somewhere to regenerate NAD. Okay? If you're in growing in, in oxygen, you're going to put them eventually on oxygen. And you're going to take oxygen and you're going to reduce it into water. Okay? Which is basically the opposite of photosynthesis, right? In, in photosynthesis, we take water and make oxygen. And now we're going to, in, in metabolism, we're going to take oxygen and make water, right? So it's kind of a nice little parallel there. Um, but if there's no oxygen to do that, well, we need to put those, those electrons somewhere because we need to regenerate NAD. So what we do depends on whether you're an animal or a yeast or something that does fermentation. In our muscles, we take pyruvate. So if you're working out and you're breathing normally and the rate at which your muscles can be regenerated with oxygen uh, is greater than your ability to burn the oxygen, well, what happens is you are running aerobic metabolism and you're basically making ATP by, by putting those electrons on oxygen. But if you're really working out and your uh, energy needs supersede your ability to get oxygen to the tissue, you can't get oxygen to the tissue quickly enough and you start running out of oxygen in the muscle, well, what your muscle starts doing is it starts taking uh, the NADH and it puts it back on pyruvate to make lactate which is also called lactic acid, right? You regenerate your NAD+, so you can keep doing glycolysis, right? But you're not able to do aerobic metabolism. You're not you can't do Krebs cycle or citric acid cycle. This lactate starts accumulating, and this is the source of what we call muscle burn, right? This is basically this accumulates in your muscle, and your muscles start hurting. And that's your signal for you to stop, get off the treadmill, and take a, breath, take a breather, right? So we've got this nice kind of system that naturally tells us when it's time to take a break. Um, and then you can replete your cells full of oxygen and, and metabolize that lactate further back into down the, down the citric acid cycle. Um, in yeast, though, instead of doing it this way, oh, sorry, this is what will also happen in, in yogurt, right, in bacteria. So um, you'll have fermentation in bacterial cultures that will basically metabolize lactose into, into lactate. So you're going to get this um, this, yogurt, this this compound that's important for yogurt. Yeah. Is there a reason why it's levo and not dextro? What do you mean by that? 
uh, sugars are and, and amino acids are not. Which one are you talking about? Lactate? Uh, I'm, I've not done the... You're saying you did the little ranking of functional groups around this carbon and did the counting and the turning? I mean, until, unless you do that, you don't know whether it's love or dextrose. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> it says right there. Um, I don't know. It is L, according to the slide. I'm not sure you'd call this a, necessarily a sugar. We talked about sugars being L, sorry, D. But sugars have aldehydes or ketone groups, and this has a carboxylic acid group. On it. So it's not a sugar, formally. It is. It is that way. Okay, so in, in yeast, okay, instead of making lactate, you're going to make ethanol, right? Uh, pyruvate's a three-carbon compound, and ethanol's a two-carbon compound. So there's going to be a decarboxylation reaction, right? That's the first step. Got this enzyme pyruvate decarboxylase, which is going to take this carboxylic acid group and split, spin it off as carbon dioxide. This requires TPP. We've seen TPP before. Remember, this is the metabolite that the riboswitch was important for controlling. Uh, for a lot of decarboxylation reactions, TPP is a required cofactor. So obviously, if you don't have TPP, you can't do this. And there are other decarboxylation reactions that also rely on TPP. Okay. So um, you can imagine, whereas if you don't have TPP, there's a problem. There's a lot of metabolic pathways that are going to bottleneck. They're going to break down. And so you always need TPP. You need some. But it's like, like we talked about in the riboswitch lecture, TPP is expensive to make. So you don't want to make more than you need. Okay. So you got this pyruvate decarboxylase, which splits it off a carbon dioxide. That changes this three-carbon uh, pyruvate into a two-carbon acetaldehyde. And then NADH is going to, this NADH that was made during glycolysis is going to be uh, oxidized back into NAD. You're going to reduce acetaldehyde. You're going to change an aldehyde into an alcohol. That's a reduction. You're going to reduce acetaldehyde into ethanol. Okay. And now your NADH your NAD plus has been regenerated and you can do more glycolysis again. Okay? Ethanol is going to accumulate, right? If you're yeast and you're floating around and there's no oxygen and the NA ethanol just floats away, well, that's fine. That's not going to hurt you. But eventually, ethanol gets to a point, if you're in a bottle, you're making beer or wine, the ethanol gets to a point where it starts inhibiting the growth of the yeast itself, right? That's why when we make beer or wine, you can't really make it past a percentage of 6 or 7% because at that point, the yeast start dying. The ethanol concentration becomes so high that you can't, the yeast won't grow anymore. If you want to make a spirit, like scotch, you have to use a still, right? You have to basically concentrate the ethanol. Okay. But this process of basically taking NADH and putting it on pyruvate to make something and getting rid of your electrons that way, we call that fermentation, whether it's ethanol or lactate. Yeah. TPP is a cofactor for this enzyme that is important for the decarboxylation. And generally, it's important for decarboxylation reactions. It's not the only enzyme that does a decarboxylation reaction that requires TPP. The other one we're going to talk about in a, few, in a few lectures, sometimes you take a carbon dioxide and put it on something. That doesn't need TPP. That needs another cofactor called biotin. OK, so we talked a little bit about this already, this idea of sometimes you want to be burning glucose because you need ATP. But let's say you just got back from Halloween, you're sugar loaded, and you just go right to bed, right? Then why would you, why would you burn glucose at that point, right? Cells, muscles, cells have kind of a base level of glucose they want to have. Uh, and, and if you... Um, have low glucose levels but high, uh, sorry, if you have, yeah, low glucose levels but high energy stores, then maybe you want to burn some of that ATP to making glucose, right? I'm not sure I did that analogy correctly, but the point is that uh, sometimes you don't want to necessarily burn glucose. Sometimes it's more productive to make it, okay? So whereas all cells burn glucose, in humans, it's largely the liver that makes glucose, okay? So you don't, we don't make glucose in, in many organs, mainly the liver. So how do we make glucose? So this is what we just covered, glycolysis, right? We started with glucose and we got down to pyruvate. We want to just go back. If we've got lots of 
ATP and lots of pyruvate. It's back, like basically all our, our ATP production machinery is backing up. And we've got lots of this. It's more productive than to you know, replete or re regenerate our glucose stores. Then you want to basically start a pyruvate and go back up to glucose. And we call that gluconeogenesis. The problem is that, for, well, for a lot of these reactions with the delta G close to zero, you know, what moved the reaction previously in glycolysis from the left to the right was you've got lots of glucose and not much ATP. So as there's lots of glucose that's moving down the chain left to right, and the stuff on the right gets, keeps getting um, removed to make ATP, well, that's moving the reaction from the left to the right. But if you've got lots of pyruvate, then the reaction is not going to go that way. It's going to want to go the other way for those enzymes for which there's, they're, rever they're reversible. The delta G is close to zero. So it's the same enzyme. Another way of saying it is that is it's the same enzyme, right? The same enzyme that moves the reaction left to right is the, is the same enzyme that moves the reaction right to left for the reversible reactions. But there are some irreversible reactions. There are some reactions that are so exergonic, and we talked about them on the table, that it's the same enzyme you can't go just go back the same way. You've got to find another way of doing it. So we call these, these bypasses. There's basically three bypasses, and they're highlighted here uh, in blue. One is to take pyruvate and make phosphoenol pyruvate. That's bypass one. And then you've got fructose 1,6-bisphosphate to make fructose 6-phosphate and glucose 6-phosphate to make glucose. So we're going to talk about those bypasses. The most complicated one, or the only really complicated one, is making phosphoenolpyruvate from pyruvate or lactate. Okay. We're going to do it for pyruvate, okay? So pyruvate is this, if you remember, phosphoenolpyruvate was this compound that had this very, very negative delta G for the hydrolysis of that phosphate on it. So that's a really difficult reaction to go back the other way, right? What turns out, to be able to go back that way, you need, number one, a completely different set of enzymes, right? So uh, the, the enzyme that, that generated pyruvate from phosphoenopyruvate, uh, that's not going to be the one that's going to bring us back that way. We've got two new enzymes, and we're going to burn two NTP equivalents to do it. So it's a very expensive reaction, right? So we take pyruvate, a three-carbon compound, and we convert it to a four-carbon compound, oxaloacetate. So where, we, where is that extra carbon going to come from? It comes from carbon dioxide. Or, sorry, bicarbonate. What am I saying? It comes from bicarbonate. And we've got this enzyme, pyruvate carboxylase. So remember before it was a decarboxylase. Now we're going to take um, pyruvate and carboxylate it, pyruvate carboxylase. And I talked already about how uh, a, decarboxylation a decarboxylation reaction relies on TPP. Carboxylation reactions, where you're putting an, a carbon, dioxide, or carbon dioxide equivalent on a carbon compound, you're adding a number of carbons, always or usually relies on this other cofactor called biotin. And we're going to burn an ATP to do that. Okay? So we convert pyruvate into the four-carbon oxaloacetate, and then we're going to take the four-carbon oxaloacetate, we're going to take that CO2 off again using this enzyme PP carboxykinase. We're going to burn a GTP, we're going to take the phosphate of GTP and put it on uh, oxaloacetate. We're going to lose a carbon. We're going to go back to losing a carbon, so it's going to go back to the three-carbon phosphoenolpyruvate. So we've effectively burned another ATP to be able to do this. Right? So it's an energetically expensive reaction. We had to burn an ATP and a GTP to be able to do this. So you don't want to necessarily make phosphoenolpyruvate from pyruvate unless I guess you really need glucose. So to bypass that energetically favorable reaction of phosphoenolpyruvate to pyruvate, to go back the other way, we use two different enzymes, and we burn two NTP equivalents to do that. Bypass two and three, they, instead of, so remember, the reaction that did this was we took fructose 6-phosphate, and we burned an ATP to ADP and used the energy of that to put a phosphate on fructose 6-phosphate to make fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. To go backwards, we don't regenerate ATP. Okay? We don't take 
fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and ADP and make fructose-6-phosphate and ATP, okay? Well, all we do is we just take the phosphate off of fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and hydrolyze it off, okay? By this enzyme, fructose-bisphosphate-bisphosphatase, okay? So this is basically a hydrolysis reaction of a phosphate. So it's, it's very exergonic. It's very favored, right? To just, we burned an ATP to go from here to here, and then to go back, we just take that phosphate and knock it off. And so if we were to go back and forth this way, we, we would just be, if we went from here to here and then here back again, we'd just be burning ATP for, we'd go back to where we started and we'd be burning ATP to do it. So it's just a waste of ATP, right? So again, you don't want to necessarily go this way unless you really want to be making glucose. And similarly, we're going to take, in bypass three, we're going to take glucose 6-phosphate and just hydrolyze it off. We're going to hydrolyze the phosphate off of glucose by this glucose 6-phosphatase. So again, to make glucose 6-phosphate, we took glucose and ATP, used the hydrolysis energy of ATP to put a phosphate on glucose to make glucose 6-phosphate. When we're going backwards, we don't regenerate ATP. We just take the phosphate off. So it's a, it's a waste of that energy. Yeah. What prevents a what? So you're going to have regulation of these enzymes. Under certain conditions, one reaction is going to be favored versus another. Okay, so I just want to finish the lecture a little bit by talking a little bit about some regulation. And I already alluded to this step already. Right. So some summary of the enzymes that are regulated. So that just gets to the point that I just addressed, right? This um, hexokinase, this reaction here, and this glucose 6-phosphatase. This reaction is going to be, for example, hexokinase is negatively regulated by glucose 6-phosphate. Um, what's another, another way of saying that is if you're doing glycolysis, right, and glucose gets metabolized into glucose 6-phosphate, and then glucose 6-phosphate, because you're doing glycolysis, you need ATP, is immediately converted into fructose 6-phosphate, well then glucose 6-phosphate levels in the cell are going to be generally low. Because the moment you make it, it gets converted to this and then down the chain, right? But if you need glucose and your ATP levels are generally high, well, then this pathway is going to start backing up. And glucose 6-phosphate levels are going to increase. Well, if glucose 6-phosphate levels are high, well, then this enzyme, hexokinase, has a binding site for glucose 6-phosphate, and it's going to bind to hexokinase, and it's going to inhibit it. So when you make glucose, you're not going to convert it to glucose 6-phosphate. You're going to take that glucose and do other things with it. Okay. I already alluded to this path, this, this site here. So fructose 6-phosphate does not need to become fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. There are other things that the cell can do with the fructose 6-phosphate. So you don't want to necessarily go this way unless you want to be doing glycolysis. And so this enzyme, phosphorfructokinase, and it's corollary enzyme that does the reverse reaction, fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, these are highly regulated enzymes. Right? They're going to be basically trying to be sensitive to what's happening in the cell in order to basically decide what, how to best use this fructose 6-phosphate. Okay? So this is basically a, a branch point, uh, a critical branch point to try that you want to make sure is, is regulated in a way that's, that's using fructose 6-phosphate most optimally. So uh, the first thing that we can talk about, which makes, I think, some general sense, is this fructo phosphofructokinase is inhibited by, sorry, it's activated by AMP, adenosine monophosphate, and it's inhibited by ATP. Okay? Well, that makes sense. This reaction, glycolysis, the function of glycolysis is to eventually make ATP. right? If you've got lots of ATP, well, then maybe you don't want to be doing this. Maybe you should be investing this fructose 6-phosphate into doing other things. Uh, and so when ATP levels are high, ATP will bind to fruct fructose 6-phosphate and inhibit it. So you're not going to convert fructose 6-phosphate into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. You're going to do other things with it. Maybe go back up to glucose, maybe make riboses, other things. On the other hand, if AMP levels are high, well, that means that you've burned uh, your ATP, and you're not able to make more 
ATP out of it, your AMP levels are kind of building up, well, that means it would be a good idea to burn some glucose and make some more ATP, right? So AMP is going to bind phosphofructokinase and activate it. So you're gonna, if you've got lots of fructose 6-phosphate around, it's going to be converted in a positive way by AMP. Um, and I'm going to talk about this fructose-2,6-bisphosphate in a few slides, but I first want to kind of show you this in a different way. Here's PFK1, this enzyme, phosphofructokinase 1, slash fructose-1,6-bisphosphatase. This enzyme actually occurs as a, as a, it's kind of a, the enzyme that does each thing is kind of the same enzyme. They, they, they happen together with two ectocytes. Right? Um, and so basically, this is basically what I was talking about. Here's the PFK1 activity of the enzyme. It's got regions on the enzyme that bind ATP, okay? And so when ATP is high, when ATP levels are high, they're going to bind these, this part of the enzyme and basically twist the enzyme. This is basically, we talked about inhibition already. They're going to twist the enzyme and the ability of the enzyme to convert fructose 6-phosphate into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate is going to be inhibited because of this ATP binding to these allosteric sites and inhibiting the enzyme, okay? So here's the PFK1, the phosphofructokinase 1 component of the enzyme. Its activity in low ATP versus high ATP. You can see that in high ATP, the enzyme's inhibited. It's less capable of converting fructose 6-phosphate into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. And here's just basically another version of what was drawn here, okay? We've got fructose 6-phosphate, being converted with ATP into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. This reaction is going to be inhibited by ATP. It's going to be activated by AMP or ADP. Okay. It's going to be promoted. Okay. This high ATP levels are indicative of don't need to do glycolysis. High AMP and ADP levels are indicative of more, glu more glycolysis, please. Okay. So that makes sense. What about this molecule here on here, this fructose 2 6 bisphosphate. Well, this is a molecule. It's really interesting. It's kind of a signaling molecule. We talked about cyclic AMP. We were talking about lacoperon and how that controls um, activity of the operon. So this is kind of a sig another signaling molecule like cyclic AMP that's going to control the activity of this enzyme. Okay. So how does fructose 2,6-bisphosphate mediate glucose metabolism? This is fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. If you remember, um, Fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, which is a substrate for glycolysis, this, it's this carbon here, this one carbon that is phosphorylated. But instead, this PFK2, the enzyme that does this is called phospho, it's also a, it's taking fructose 6-phosphate, and instead of making fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, it's making fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. So this enzyme is called PFK2, right? The previous enzyme was called PFK1, this is called PFK2, it's taking an ATP and making it's hydrolyzing the ADP and making fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, and that's what this looks like here. It can also be converted back into fructose 6-phosphate by this um, phos uh, fructose-bisphosphatase 2 enzyme. So basically that's going to hydrolyze off that phosphate and make fructose 6-phosphate out of it again. Okay. So, so why do we make this? Okay. Well, um, glucagon is a kind of a hormone in your bloodstream that's basically signaling uh, glucose levels are, are low. Okay? That's a problem. When glucose levels are low, your brain is very unhappy. Okay? And so that would be a good idea. When, when glucose levels are low, it would be a good idea to stop burning glucose and start making it. Start moving glucose back, moving pyruvate back up the chain and making glucose out of it. Okay? So when glucagon levels are high, this activates a protein, ki uh, this, uh, protein kinase called protein kinase A. Okay. This will phosphorylate this enzyme, this PFK2, all right, and activate it. So when this enzyme is active, okay, um, sorry, inactivating it. I want to get this messed up. It's easy to mess it up. So when uh, glucose levels are low, uh, PFK2 gets phosphorylated by protein kinase A, and that inactivates it. So the amount of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is going to drop. Okay. When fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is low, if you go back to this slide, right, this reaction is activated by fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, right? So when this is low, you're going to be inhibiting glycolysis, okay? So as fructose 2,6-phosphate is inactivated, um, so basically glucagon levels are high, uh, cyclic AMP 
is going to phosphorylate phosphofructokinase 2. It's going to inactivate it. Reciprocally, reciprocally it activates the enzyme that uh, converts um, fructose 2,6-bisphosphate into fructose 6-phosphate. Okay? And so as um, PFK2 is inactive, you're going to make less fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, and you're going to inhibit this reaction, relatively speaking. Okay. On the other hand, insulin dephosphorylates PFK2, all right, activating it. If phosphofructokinase 2 is active, it's going to make more fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. That fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is going to activate PFK1, and you're going to, make, you're going to promote glycolysis. So basically, this reaction is basically promoting glycolysis or inhibiting glycolysis based on whether you've got insulin present. Insulin is an indicator for high glucose levels. Or glucagon present, which is an active, uh, indicator for low glucose levels. And so this is basically a, um, another way of doing this, another way of diagramming it, right? We've got fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, which activates PFK1, which promotes glycolysis, uh, but inactivates uh, this FBPase, which inhibits the other reverse reaction. So this signaling molecule that's responsive, the abundance of it is going to be responsive to insulin levels and glucagon levels, is going to alternatively uh, activate or inactivate glycolysis and reciprocally act activate or inactivate uh, gluconeogenesis. So we've got down here this PFK1 activity here. In the presence of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, the PFK1 activity is very high. Uh, in the absence of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, its activity is relatively lower, whereas it's the opposite effect for the FBPase, the um, phosphatase. In the absence of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, it's active. But in the presence, it's not active. Does that make sense? All right. Okay. Uh, thanks, everyone, and we'll pick this up next class.